Chapter 20 of Boston Blackie by Jack Boyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Blackie's Prophecy Comes True During the months that followed, the Glad Rags Kid became a conspicuous figure in petty police circles in San Francisco, so conspicuous that the newspapers discovered him and made the most of the discovery. He developed a perfect genius for publicity, the one indulgence a crook may not permit himself. After a trip with Anne to a Puget Sound city, a trip from which they brought back a palm full of gems that made the eyes of old Crowder gleam avariciously, the kid bought a bright vermilion racing car which a salesman solemnly assured him was an exact duplicate of Barney Oldfield's. His first taste of newspaper publicity followed the day on which he was arrested for speeding slightly over fifty miles an hour along a crowded driveway in Golden Gate Park. He appeared before the police judge next morning, bedecked with diamonds and in apparel that made the room gasp, and gave reporters a chance to comment humorously on the descriptive justice of his nickname. The judge fined him fifty dollars. The Gladrags kid peeled a hundred-dollar bill from a thick roll and tossed it to the court clerk. "'Buy yourself a smoke with a change,' he said carelessly. "'I haven't time to wait.' In a second he was gone, and an amazed courtroom through open windows heard the staccato reports of his giant motor fading away in the distance at a speed that caused the judge to remark, "'I hope to have the pleasure of finding that debonair young gentleman again.' A reporter with a real gift for fiction discovered that the Gladrag's kid was a New York gunman and the kid, though he had never seen the eastern slopes of the Sierras, tacitly confirmed the charge, and wrote a page story for his paper's Sunday magazine called New York's Man-Killers Invade the Wild West. It was profusely decorated with photographs of the kid and his newest and most startling examples of the tailoring art, and contained a circumstantial account of my bloodiest street battle over the kid's signature. The Gladrags kid clipped that page from the paper and carried it about in a wallet from which he offered it for inspection at the slightest provocation. Also he began to carry a gun, slung under his armpit crook fashion, whereby carelessly throwing back his coat he could display it in cafes and saloons when opportunity offered. "'He's a thoroughbred notoriety hound,' said Blackie disgustedly to Mary. "'His one joy is to be the spectacular figure in the center of the calcium.' It will take all of Anne's cleverness to keep them out of prison, if he keeps on. Also, he's becoming a familiar figure at the downtown restaurants and the beach-dancing pavilions. Sometimes Anne is with him, and more often she isn't. I'm afraid her little bit of heaven is going to be no more than that. I know, answered Mary mournfully. She never says anything, but I can see the truth in her face. She never comes over here any more, and very seldom calls up. She don't even go downtown or to the palms. I'm afraid she spends many a lonely evening beside a big chair that's vacant by the fireplace. I never see her with a cookbook any more. The next evening, Anne called up Mary to ask if she and Blackie would dine with them at an Italian restaurant noted less for food than for its dancing. Let's go and try to cheer her up a bit, suggested Mary to her husband. There was something in her voice over the phone that hurt me to hear. All through the dinner, the Gladrags kid monopolized the conversation, dividing his time between discussing clothes and diamonds and berating the waiter for faulty service. The men were dawdling over cigarettes and a liqueur when the orchestra began an old waltz. The Gladrags kid turned to Alibi Ann. 
Come, honey, he said. Let's dance. Anne rose quickly, and they glided away. Did you see the light that came into her eyes when he asked her to dance? asked Blackie of Mary. Yes, said she. I saw it. Poor Anne. She's clinging desperately to the remnants of her happiness, and she asks so very little and gives so very much. What would he be without her? Just what he is anyway. Nothing, answered Blackie. As Anne flushed and happy, returned to the table and sank into her chair with the last strains of the waltz, the glad rags kid glanced across the dining room to a table where a young girl sat alone. "'I see Desi DeVry, the dancer, across the room,' he said. "'I'm going to invite her over to our table. She's good company, and besides, she's anxious to get on here as an entertainer, and I'm going to introduce her to Williams, the manager.' For just a second, Alibi Ann's body stiffened. Then, with a forced-lipped smile that revealed in an instant the utter soul-weariness of a woman consciously losing a vital struggle, she looked up at her husband. "'Yes, do bring her over, Tom,' she said. "'I would like to meet her.' The glad-rags kid threaded his way between the tables to the one where the girl sat. She looked up at him with a confident, welcoming smile. They talked a moment and started back to the now silent table from which Anne, with half-shielded eyes, was studying every detail of the newcomer's appearance. Alibi Anne saw in Desi DeVry a slender girl, young, attractive, and vivacious, with great coils of golden hair low on her head. If the dancer was conscious of the atmosphere of constraint, she ignored it, and in a moment was chatting across the table to Anne and Mary, but particularly to Anne, with the easy familiarity of assured acquaintanceship. Anne, if she felt hostility, masked it beneath a concealing but thin veneer of cordiality. During a lull in the conversation, the orchestra began the jazziest of foxtrots. "'Bully time! Let's dance!' cried the glad-rags kid, rising. Anne, her pale face warmed by a flush of becoming color, half rose eagerly, and then, as she looked up, saw Desi DeVry also rising. There was an awkward moment as their eyes met. They both looked toward the kid. "'Dessie and I will dance this,' he said, flushing slightly as he made the choice. Then, with a clumsy attempt at playfulness and utterly unconscious of the dagger in his words, he added to Anne, "'The time's too fast for you, Grandma.' "'Of course it is, Sonny,' said Anne, with a laugh. The glad-rags kid whirled away with Dessie DeVry in his arms. Alibi Anne poured a glass of champagne, her first of the evening, and drank thirstily. "'Youth turns to youth,' she said, looking across the table to Blackie and Mary. "'It's always been so. But until now I never realized how inevitable it is.' She snapped her fingers with a reckless gesture, vividly expressive, and began to talk of inconsequential things with a careless gaiety that might have deceived less keen observers than the two opposite her. The ferryboat Piedmont was making her final trip across the bay from Oakland to the San Francisco shore. The few passengers she carried had found shelter from the chilling night wind within the brilliantly lighted cabin, all but two. One of these was a woman who, from the moment the boat had left the Oakland slip, had been standing alone, motionless and silent, against the after-deck rail. The other was Boston Blackie, who, from concealment in the shadow of the deck-house, was watching her curiously. Not until the Piedmont had passed Goat Island did the woman raise her eyes from the inky blackness of the water. 
Slowly she straightened herself and turned for a moment toward the distant San Francisco shore, a bright flare of light against the black background of the night sky. The cloak that had been drawn high about her neck slipped to the deck, and Blackie, leaning forward, caught the glint of something in her hand that she had drawn from beneath the discarded garment. Without making a sound, he stepped quickly to her side and laid a hand on her arm. The woman trembled under the pressure of unexpected fingers and turned a white and haggard face toward him. "'Anne!' cried Blackie, and reaching down he took a bottle from between ice-cold fingers that surrendered it without resistance. A thin beam of light from his pocket flashlamp revealed the label. "'Cyanide of potassium,' he read. "'So, Anne, it has come to this with you. You, Alibi Anne, the gamest of them all.' The woman turned away her face. "'Why not?' she said at last in a faint, faraway voice. Other tired ones have. Why not I? She felt the pressure of the firm fingers on her arm tighten. Because, Anne, you never were and never can be a quitter, he said quietly. A quitter? she cried wonderingly. I don't understand. You wouldn't leave a pal in prison, said Blackie. You wouldn't abandon a pal lying sick. No. But without knowing it, you were thinking of doing just that. She shook her head. He doesn't need me. He doesn't want me. Youth turns to youth. For the first time her voice trembled. Yes, and turns into old age, too, before it finishes paying for its folly, Blackie answered. The Gladrags kid hasn't brains enough to know it, I admit, but he needs you as no one else ever did or will. Alibi Ann turned to him instantly, with something like faintly kindling hope in her eyes. "'You know him better than anybody,' Blackie went on. "'Alone, he couldn't steal bottles from doorsteps without landing himself behind bars. He has trained himself to spend money, lots of it. He has a faked reputation as a gunman to uphold, or thinks he has. Well, easy money and that reputation. What's the answer? You've played the game long enough to know, Ann. It's prison.' If you quit the glad rags kid in this or any other way, I'll tell you just what will happen. He will spend all the money you've left him. Then when he has to have more money to live as he wants to, he'll try one brainless caper and land himself in prison for the rest of his days. You've undertaken something, Anne, that you can't pass up. You say the kid doesn't need you? I say you know better. Boston Blackie laid the vial of cyanide in her hand. There's your bottle, Annie, he said gently. It's up to you. For a second, the bottle lay in the hand that rested on the deck rail. Then the fingers slowly opened and let it slip overboard, to splash faintly as it struck the water and vanished. Alibi Ann seized Blackie's arm. You're right, dear old pal, she whispered between sobs. I'd have been a quitter if I'd gone where that bottle is now. I'm going back to the flat, and I'll wait with a smiling face for him to come. I'll play the game out, Blackie. Just before daylight, Boston Blackie was awakened by the telephone. Anne's voice, very low and frightened, replied to his, Hello. It's happened already, Blackie, she said. All that you predicted came true tonight. Thomas killed a man at the Trocadero Pavilion. The coppers have him, and it looks like a hard case. Thank God and you, I'm still here to save him. Will you and Mary come over now, oh, quickly? The morning newspapers carried the news in flaring headlines. 
At last the glad rags kid, much advertised gunman, had justified his newspaper reputation by committing deliberate murder. It had been an unusually dramatic crime, done on the crowded dancing floor of the Trocadero, under the eyes of scores of diners. The newspapers agreed on all the essential details. The glad rags kid had come in from his racing car alone, and at once appeared to resent the fact that Miss Dessie DeVree, cabaret entertainer, was dancing with the manager of a downtown dining place. As the music had ended and the dancer and her escort started toward the table from which they had ordered supper, the glad rags kid intercepted them. There had been a quick, angry exchange of words between the men, and the older had roughly shouldered the gunman aside. Instantly the kid had drawn his automatic and covered his adversary, but he did not shoot. His experience in gunplay ended when he had drawn his revolver, the cue for his opponent to fade out conveniently through the nearest door and leave the gunman a spectacular figure in the spotlight. This particular antagonist, however, knew what the San Francisco crook world had always known, that the Gladrags kid was a gunman on paper only. Instead of retreating precipitately as the kid expected, the girl's escort had faced him. "'Put up that gun, you four-flusher, before I stuff it down your throat,' he had commanded. "'A kid's pop-gun is all a chief bluffer like you ought to be allowed to carry.' Then, for the first time since he had owned it, the glad rags kid's pistol had spat forth a jet of flame, and the man who had said four-flusher crumpled to the floor with a bullet through his heart. The price of forgetting that even a four-flusher may become the real thing when his vanity is sufficiently stung. The diners and dancers had fled the room, hysterical with fright, foremost among them Miss Dessie de Vries, and left the glad rags kid, very white and very frightened, standing above the man he had killed and wondering dully how and why it had happened. He had still been staring down at his victim when a policeman tapped him on the shoulder. Long before the police auto reached the city prison, the glad rags kid was begging like a frightened child for someone among his blue-coated captors to telephone for Alibi Ann to come to him at once. He needed her now. It was late afternoon before Anne reached the city prison where her husband was confined. All day she had stifled a frantic desire to rush to him with the comfort of her love and loyalty, for she knew instinctively his state of utter despair and fright. But there were other matters vastly more important that must first be arranged if the kid was to have a fighting chance for life. Already the prosecuting attorney had announced publicly that he intended to stamp out gunmanism in San Francisco by insisting that the so-called glad rags kid, a notorious criminal, be given the extreme penalty of the law, death on the scaffold. Drennan, shrewdest of all criminal lawyers, for whom Anne was waiting when he appeared in his office, listened to the story and read the papers with steadily growing gravity. "'It's a tough case, Anne,' he said solemnly when he had gathered all the facts, and it's being made a hundred times worse by this cursed reputation as a gunman he has allowed the papers to build up against him in the past. It is established that his victim was unarmed. That knocks out self-defense. Insanity doesn't go with juries any more. It's been badly overdone. There were a dozen, maybe twenty witnesses. We can't get them all out of town. I tell you frankly, we're going to be mighty lucky if we can save this kid's neck." Anne shuddered. It looks, the lawyer continued, as if we are up against proof of what obviously is the truth, that this young gentleman committed a deliberate murder in cold blood. He's only a boy, pleaded Anne. 
just a poor, foolish boy. What the devil did you marry such a fool of a boy for? demanded the lawyer in exasperation, for he knew and liked Anne, and her voice told him how deeply she was suffering. Because I loved him, she answered, and now that he needs me, I love him even more. Boston Blackie, who was with her, jumped to his feet. Drennan, he said, play for time. Delay every move as long as possible. Have the inquest continued, the preliminary continued, everything continued. Every week gain is an advantage, every month is a victory. Anything will happen, you know, if you wait long enough for it, and something may, even in this case. The attorney looked up with shrewd understanding. I don't know, but you're right, he said. I don't see a chance in the world to save him if he ever goes before a jury. It was after a long day of such discouragement that Alibi Ann was at last admitted to the visitor's room at the prison, where the glad rags kid was waiting. He rushed to her with outstretched hands and reproachful eyes. "'Oh, Anne!' he cried brokenly. "'You've left me here for the whole day without a word. I, I thought you were not going to come at all. I've been half crazy with worry. Have you seen the papers? Have you read what the prosecutor says? He says he will insist that they hang me, me.' He broke down completely over the dreaded words. "'Never, Tom, never,' said Anne, drawing the bowed head close against her breast with a movement inexpressibly tender and protecting. "'They'll never do that,' she faltered, her lips refusing the words she meant. "'Never while I live, Tom.' She told him of the employment of Drennan, and of their plans to delay and postpone each step in the preliminaries to the actual trial. "'And meantime, Anne, what am I going to do?' he asked. "'Can I get bail? Can you buy me out?' "'There is no bail for murder,' she answered regretfully. "'Then I've got to stay in this dirty, rotten hole for days, weeks, months?' he cried in resentful amazement. "'I can't do it. I won't. There must be some way to release me, if you'll take the trouble to find it. You've never had to lie in jail yourself. But now that I'm in, you don't care.' You're willing to let me stay in here through days of hell like this. Anne dared not tell him that her one hope was that the subtlety of the shrewdest of lawyers might win him the privilege of remaining in a prison cell, instead of being carried, still and silent, to one narrower, darker, lonelier, and eternally permanent. That night, Alibi Anne, who had neither tasted food nor rested since the murder, worked alone in her flat on a list she was making of every diamond and jewel and marketable possession she owned. She was turning everything into cash to make a fight for the glad rag kid's life. At the same hour, Desi DeVries was posing before the camera of a newspaper photographer who had promised her his paper would treat her beautifully and that he would send her enlarged copies of her photograph. End of chapter 20